0: Welcome to episode 135 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm
1: Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. For you. In this world I do. Jesse, how you doing? Brother. What's up?
0: Not a lot. I was going to try to say <laughs> something clever, but... Everything left me. We just had a false start on we this did. whole podcast. It's throwing and so us it's, off completely. It's already through me. Luckily, I've got some affirmations. You've got some affirmations. I got the Niles. You got the Niles. So That's I feel true. like we should just kick right into that and spare me any kind of further insanity.
1: Let's do it. Why don't you start us out?
0: So this week I'm affirming with some music again. I, th- I feel like I affirm a lot of music on our podcast. You do. But it's always great when you have a piece of music in your library and you haven't listened to it for a while. And then something reminds you to pull it out and you listen to yeah. it and you just remind it how fantastic it is. And so that's why I have to, I feel compelled to affirm with a particular album that was actually put out in 1975. You may be familiar with this because it came up based on a recent podcast that I listened to. But this album is the Cologne Concert by Keith Jarrett. Okay. And Keith Jarrett is a amazing pianist. He's specifically more of like a jazz pianist, but here's the deal. So in 1975, he was on tour. He's world renowned. So he's in Germany in Cologne and he's going to perform at the opera house there. And the reason why this is an amazing album is because it's 66 minutes of complete improvisation. And in my mind, improvisation is like the closest thing to like creating something out of nothing. Like it's not exactly like that, but the closest I think I can imagine. And The amazing thing, though, about this particular album is not just that it was completely improvised, but for some reason at this particular venue, at the Opera House, there was some miscommunication about the arrangements. And so he needed a particular piano. And for whatever reason, those at the Opera House pulled out the piano that they thought was requested. And it actually was just like the old rehearsal piano that was like in some back room. Oh wow! So this thing was in complete disrepair. It had to be tuned for several hours before they could even get a playable for him. And then like the upper register and the lower register didn't even work and the pedals didn't even work. So here's what is like amazing is he played this thing for 66 minutes and this album that was recorded went on to be the best selling solo album of jazz in, in all of history and it's also the all time best selling piano album. It wow. is absolutely beautiful. So I think that music alone proves the existence of God because we have noise by design. But this album in particular, because, like, you know how music is it's this wonderful tension of notes moving in various directions, and then everything wants to be resolved. Like, across cultures, across geographies, when we listen to music, our ear wants to hear it come back to what we think is like the right ending note. And Keith Jarrett does this wonderful thing where he brings, I think, literally, like the story of redemption into music because he's working with all these wonderful melodies and he's building in this tension of always bringing things back into resolution. Like, here's creation itself groaning to be resolved. And actually, he does some groaning of his own on this album. But it, it's <laughs> amazing. It's amazing. So the Cologne nice. concert, look it up. You can get it on Spotify. Just just put it on. Even if like you're just making dinner or something, just put it on. You will be amazed. It is, okay. I think, some of the best... I'm going to say it this way. Some of the best straight-up worship music I have ever heard, because you cannot listen to this and not give glory to God for his creative abilities. They're demonstrated in just a dude. Here's just a dude playing a piano, like just pounding on some keys. Yeah, And it is exceptional. It is absolutely glorious. So I can't affirm enough the Cologne concert by Keith Jarrett.
1: Now, you have to be careful, because if you type that wrong, you might get the Colon concert, and that would be something different.
0: I can't imagine what that (laughs)
1: is. (laughs) I work at a gastroenterology clinic, so... Everything goes to the crapper in the end. (laughs) Is that a pun too? It is. It is. So (laughs) I am affirming actually two books now. Uh, I have in my hands, um, anyone who's been through seminary and has studied Greek will be familiar with the basics of biblical Greek. Uh, It's a grammar by Bill Mounts. Um, And they just released their fourth edition. And Sondervan was kind enough to provide me with a copy so I can kind of be aware of the changes because people do ask me on a pretty regular basis what they should use for Greek. So I'm not too far into it. But the biggest change is that it's actually sized like a regular book now, which is huge because it used to be like a full eight and a half by 11 inch like book. And it like didn't fit in your shelf, didn't fit in your book, on your bag. But now it's uh, shaped like a real book. So get the fourth edition. Um, It's really good. And this is a really good way to learn Greek. And the way that uh, mounts does Greek is it's entirely possible to pick this book up and get a reasonable mastery of Greek uh, on your own without any real help from the outside. And he has all sorts of free lectures and stuff on his website that you can utilize uh, to get you there. And then after you've learned Biblical Greek, there's a new series that Hendrickson has uh, published called Keeping Up Your Biblical Greek in Two Minutes a Day. And basically what it is, it's uh, it's 365 entries. And it's just like a verse with some vocab review um, and an English translation. But basically, you can read through the English translation or, or you can do it the way you want. But what I do is I, I cover up the English translation and then I try to cite translators, cite read the Greek. And then underneath that, there's a list of the vocabulary words in case I get stuck, so I can sight read. If I get stuck on a word, I can look down below. And this is a really good kind of inductive way to maintain your Greek, because anyone who's taken any language, not just Greek, knows that the hardest part of learning a language is the maintenance after you've kind of been done studying it, of keeping up that skill. And for those who've studied Greek academically, you know the goal is to study Greek so we can learn and read and understand the Bible more. But most people, even Even pastors, once they're out of seminary, they lose their Greek skills probably in about a year and a half or two years, uh, unless you really diligently keep up the study. So Basics of Biblical Greek, fourth edition, uh, published by Zondervan, and Keep Up Your Biblical Greek in Two Minutes a Day, published by Hendrickson, are my affirmations for the week.
0: Let's take a moment to acknowledge the immense unity in diversity on this podcast right now, so I'm like, hey, you should listen to some piano music. You're like, hey, people always ask me what Greek text you should use. <laughs> yeah, they do, it's true. Yeah, that's not a question that people ask me.
1: I'm curious, to music very much.
0: I am <laughs> this is great. So, I'm glad we're doing this. We're learning so much from each other. I do have a question though, seeing the book, cause I can actually see you holding it up. You did yeah. do a, a pretty slick, like Vanna White with that book.
1: I did. I don't know why I did. I, is that
0: like a book that you'd recommend for like a straight beginner? So somebody that's yeah. like, I'm just interested in in Greek. I don't know yeah. anything about Greek. I just know that it kicks people in the face. Is yeah. that a good introductory text?
1: It is. Yeah. And, and, um, basically he, he does it in sort of a, it's a combination of an inductive and a deductive method. So, an, uh, I'm going to get this wrong probably, and someone's going to call it, but an inductive method is basically um, you study the language the way that we learn language. So like you read a lot of it, you do a lot of like reading the language, struggling through it, almost like a, um, like a immersion type learning. Right. A deductive language uh, program is where like you memorize a bunch of forms. And so his is a sort of fusion of that. And what's nice is he, he wrote the book with the intention of this being a way to get to better exegesis and better sermons. Like that's the express purpose of the book. And so he, he does a really good job getting you into the biblical text as quickly as possible. Um, there are a lot of Greek texts that have you reading like um, classic sources because it's easier to find classic sources that have like the more limited vocabulary that you learn right off the bat. Um, where this gets you into biblical text right away. And it's funny because I remember um, when I took Greek in college. So I took Greek in college and then I took it again in seminary. And when I took Greek in college, we had Greek 2, which is sort of like the the culmination of your introductory Greek studies uh, during our uh, J-term course. We did it over the course of a month. And then we had um, readings in New Testament Greek for our third semester. And I remember the day that the New Testament Bibles, the, the Greek New Testaments were received at the bookstore. And we all like ran down there on our break to get them because we were so excited to actually like get into the biblical text that we'd been working towards. So he puts that out in front of you as kind of like the carrot to get you started, but he gets you into that to like sort of hit that reward center in your brain as quickly as possible. So I've just found it to be a really, really usable text. Um, and he does a lot to sort of help you understand English grammar before you start studying Greek grammar, because that's another thing that Greek learners usually struggle with is we don't even really understand English grammar. So how are we supposed to jump in and and talk about Greek grammar? So he does a fair amount of work getting you to understand the the grammar concepts in English before he then teaches it to you in Greek. So I think it's a great book. It's the one that every seminary that I know uses as an introductory text. um, And it definitely is a good way to do it. And like I said, he provides free lessons on his website that introduce the topics and talks through it. So you can actually get pretty much a full Greek uh, training uh, just by having the book and going through the lectures.
0: All right. So I'm going to absolutely double down on a denial this week. All right, let's and do it. You better get ready because it's not a very popular one. Okay. So I am absolutely doubling down and denying against Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah. Again. I'm all with you. But not necessarily for the reason maybe some would expect. So, of course, like, I, I know that... It's not just because like I'm not into Game of Thrones. It seems like I've heard it's like an amazing storyline, and that's that's probably very much the case. And this has come up a lot more recently because I think they're into like the new or the last season yeah. of this particular show. Um, and I want to be careful about this because I'm not trying to put anybody on blast in particular. All I'm just saying is I'm denying against the show because I think as it's entered the last season, it's caused a lot of people to want to go back and re-watch it. it. It's got a lot more attention to kind of pulling people into the storyline because it just gets a lot of press and because, again, it's it's very popular. Um, But the bottom line is for me, I have seen like maybe 40 minutes or so of Game of Thrones, which is basically just the first episode. I watched it with my wife. We had no idea what we were going into. That's awkward. just yeah, well, that's kind of what I'm denying against is that my personal conviction and each one has to bring their own conviction as they sort this thing out was just that it was inappropriate. So yeah, I know that's not going to be popular, but the reason I'm kind of denying against this is that has put me put me on this path, including this kind of resurgence of all this Game of Thrones talk, to really evaluating everything that I listen to read and watch and really ask critical questions as is this giving glory to God? Is this a stumbling block for me or somebody else? Is this the kind of thing that I want to support? So, and I'm, I'm talking to myself first more than anybody else who's listening to my voice. So this denial, I guess, is in a sense against even my own judgment, my own discernment or lack thereof, but Game of Thrones is the easy target right now because I yeah. just can't hang with that. And it's possible that like, maybe I'll pick up the books and the books are awesome. I don't know. I mean, that's, I'm not against the story. Yeah. It's, it's just, I guess the portrayal of the story in particular, especially like all the nudity, the sexual content, which to me seemed gratuitous. And I haven't really ha- heard a good argument for why it's not. Yeah. But this is somebody who just saw again, like the first 40 minutes of an entire yeah. series.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny because I'm sort of experiencing the same thing online where, you know, I'm seeing people talking about it and, um, I don't remember exactly where it was, but the most common kind of like explanation for why it's okay is like, well, the nudity sort of weans off as you get further into the story. So like, maybe just like fast forward through the parts in the beginning, but once you get into like the third season, it goes away, but somebody, and this is a secular source who is actually arguing much the same way you are that like, this is just gratuitous nudity and sex that isn't good for anybody. It's not helpful for anybody. And they actually analyzed it. And I don't know who did this analysis, but there is more nudity in season in the last season that was aired than there was in the first two or three seasons combined. So it's not, it's not the case that it's getting less and less uh, uh, centered around sexuality and nudity. And, you know, you're, you're being very kind and gentle and I'll go one step further. Like you should not watch game of Thrones. Like it's not, it's not a matter of conviction. It's, it's a straight matter. I mean, everyone should be convinced in their own heart but exactly this is pornography like straight and simple they put naked people on screen who are simulating sexual acts in an attempt to entice you to lust in order to get to your pocketbook like that's they've said the marketing team and the the people who make the show have said yeah we use nudity because it increases our viewership um and you know what i tried i was i don't know where i was going i was flying somewhere and i tried i picked up the book in the airport and i got like two chapters in and i threw it in the garbage because it's just as it's just as graphic and gratuitous and i actually found it was worse for me reading it because now it wasn't just my eyes that were like consuming something outside of me, but my brain was actually generating the filthy images. And that I thought was right, actually worse. participating. I thought that. that was actually worse than um it was worse for my own spiritual sake. It was worse um, it maybe isn't worse in terms of like, you're not really participating in someone else's sin. You're not like causing someone else to need to sin in order to produce the content for you. Although I'm not sure that I can say that you, you can write what this guy wrote uh, without without sinning. Like, I'm just not sure how that's possible. But I am 100% with you.
0: I'm with you. And I'm, this opens up, I think like a whole door, at least in my life in the sense that I'm not saying that there aren't things that I need to reevaluate that that's actually precisely what I'm saying. So that's why I'm kind of denying against this as a step toward really, I don't know, I guess, trying to, trying to understand what it means to seek pious living in the consumption of entertainment, especially when the entertainment is super popular. Like for instance, I'm sure this is the case where you work. Like where I work, this is just a, a form of like constant conversation. Like, yeah, so, so it's so actually surprisingly ubiquitous that you were definitely the odd person out these days. Yeah. And I don't know when this the show airs. Is it on Sunday nights? I think, so. yeah, I think so. Yeah. Because there, there's at least one day during the week where that's all anybody wants to talk about. And it, literally, it is everybody. And yeah. so there's definitely when people ask, well, why are you not into it? And I try to explain it. I definitely come off in kind of this prude like manner, but yeah. I'm not trying to be overly puritanical. I'm just trying to be a little bit more honest with myself and with the standards that I think God sets forth in the scriptures. Yeah. And I know that's unpopular, but
1: yeah.
0: that, that is what it is. Like, I don't think that people often necessarily dislike me, but they definitely dislike the God that is in me.
1: Yeah. And so, oh yeah, for sure.
0: I mean, that, that's just something that I have to live with. And if this is where I have to do it, then I'm just going to keep denying against it all day, every day and twice in the Lord's day. So yeah. how about you? What are you denying this week?
1: So I'm going to get real serious for a minute. Um, so many of our listeners are familiar with Rachel Held Evans and the news broke uh, recently that after a, a sort of a long stretch in the hospital that she uh, sadly has died. And what I'm denying against uh, is not, not anything specific to her, but but reading reading what was said during the last uh, kind of conscious time of her life and her right. her last blog posts, it really got me thinking that um, first and foremost, I want to say like if you're one of those people that's going to go online and talk about the state of her salvation, you really need to like do some study about the judgment of charity. Because although we have lots of reason to think that she may not have been a believer, we also hold to a confession that says God can call those um, in whatever way and in whatever time he chooses. So there was a long period of time where she was in and out of consciousness, having seizures, where the Holy Spirit very well could have been working on her heart and calling her to himself. Um, and we should hope for that. We should hope that that was the case. And we should hope that when she woke up, she woke up in the embrace of her Savior. Um, we, we're not going to presume that, but we should hope that. But that said, what I'm denying against is leaving your status before the Lord unknown to your loved ones and to those around you. And the reason I say that is because Rachel Held Evans is unfortunately for um, the conservative Christian world, a big fat question mark. Um, she never expressly denied the faith. Uh, she never expressly rejected any of the central dogmas of Christian religion. Um, she held a sort of a different soteriology than uh, most of us would feel comfortable with. But she never really denied the penal substitution element, at least not in um, not in a real raw format. I don't know that she would call herself a penal substitution person, but I think she would affirm the concepts of penal substitution in a broad sense. And so her life is a big question mark for us. And I got to thinking about that that you know if if I were to get in a car accident on the way home. Would it be the case that those around me, my wife, my family, my coworkers who are Christians, my coworkers who aren't Christians, would it be the case that they would unquestioningly say Tony loved the Lord and he served the Lord and he lived a life of obedience to the best he could. And there was fruit proving that the Holy Spirit was in him. Would, would they say that? Um, I think they would. I, I hope they would. Um, but we should strive to make our calling and election sure. Now that, that passage is not talking about the demonstration of our calling and election to those around us. It's primarily about validating our own uh, it's about assurance, right? It's about validating our calling and election by bearing good fruit uh, to prove that the Lord has changed our lives. But I think the principle applies to all of us that, that in our effort to validate our own election for our own assurance, that should also serve the function of validating our election and our calling to those who love us and those who are around us. And, you know, I got to thinking about my dad who died about two years ago, maybe three years ago now, and his his faith was a big question mark to me. And it wasn't until I went home for the funeral and I sat down um, with the director at the nursing home that he was in to start to plan some of this stuff. And the the director at the nursing home was a Presbyterian minister. And I, I started to talk to him about how I just wasn't, I wasn't sure where my dad stood in the Lord. And what he said to me was, as your dad approached the end of his life, it was clear that his biggest desire was to be in the presence of God's people in the worship service. And so he, w- he would go out of his way to make his way into the chapel during worship services. And, but I, I didn't have that assurance. I, I feel assured now after hearing that and, and talking to the person who was ministering to him in, in his last days, I feel assured now that he's in heaven. But but up until that point, I had no real assurance because my, my dad's faith was kind of a question mark for me. So what I'm denying is is, is the idea of us leaving that question mark in place for those we love. Because it's a really hard thing when you lose someone to not know whether you're going to see them again in heaven. Um, So I'm encouraging all of our listeners and I'm encouraging myself, I'm I'm preaching to the choir here to make sure that your life has the character and the the status and that you're expressing your faith in in works of love and charity, such that your friends and family can know uh, that you are in the Lord.
0: I'm glad you brought that up because that's actually something I've been thinking about as well even before I learned about uh, Rachel Held Evans, but this idea that we ought to make our election sure to ourselves. Part of the reason why we we undergo the process, I think, of really studying theology is to know God better so that we might understand our soteriology, that we might articulate and express it, I think, first to ourselves. And then, as you said, also to our, our loved ones. And part of that process is, you know, thinking about what happens to us, what happens to our salvation as we age, And so my wife, as you know, works at a retirement community Mm -hmm. and I see how she interacts with people there. And I see people who are going through the immense trauma, for instance, of of just complete memory loss or debilitation, especially of the mind, which scares the heck out of me. And the reason why I'm so comforted in the salvation that God gives us, especially as we understand it through the proper rubric of Calvinism, is this idea that God is the one who preserves and allows his saints to persevere. So yeah. that we need to make certain that our loved ones know that if, for instance, I was to totally lose my mind tomorrow because of a car accident or was to go into a coma, that God is himself who preserves me long after I have the cognitive ability to acknowledge him, that he, on his own volition, by his own power, outside of any circumstance, saves me and holds me in the palm of his hand. Yeah. And so it's important, like you said, for our loved ones to know that that's how we understand how God has saved us. Yeah, And so it's just, I think that brings immense comfort to ourselves. And we acknowledge, yes, if I experience dementia, if I have Alzheimer's, if I cannot even remember who I am, I can still trust that the only one who needs to know who I am is God himself. Yeah, And that is, that is solid and stable and is impervious. So I'm with you. What a great idea to kind of just say to like your wife or husband or your mother or father, just like, you know, casually, Hey, this is where I stand with God. Just so you know, yeah, I think that's a great conversation to have. Yeah,
1: yeah, and and you know, there's a lot of um, the assurance and peace that Christians have. I mean, assurance of God's assurance of God's love and peace of conscience and joy in the Holy Spirit and increasing grace and perseverance there until the end. Those are the benefits that accompany justification, adoption, and sanctification. So, so those things should be present in our lives. And when we, when we go, when we die, a lot of times the people in our lives, the, the, the strongest testimony that we're going to have, sort of the, the most final gospel that we are going to preach is the fact that God did what he said he was going to do in our lives and that it was clear. And I, wow. I just, I haven't seen it yet. Um, But I think it's actually probably because the news broke over the weekend. I think when we hit Monday and people start catching up on their Twitter feeds, people are going to see that that she's died. And I want this is going to come out on Wednesday. So this may already be in full bore by then. But I want our listeners to understand this. Um, This is out of Westminster 10, uh, Section 3. It's on the chapter on effectual calling. And it says, elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth. And this is the part that I think applies and why we should be cautious in making a statement about uh, the status of Rachel Held Evans eternity. It says, so also are all other elect persons who are incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word. And what that means is you know, we usually think about that in terms of people who are have some sort of like severe cognitive disability. Um, right. but it also applies to people who have fallen into comas or who have suffered brain injury or who age out of their senses, right? people who enter the end of their life and they lose their ability to think rationally. that those people, just like elect infants, are are capable of being called by God immediately. right. So, I I actually think, and this is this was my prayer for her as the news was breaking, and as she was in these comas. You can go to her her blog, and you can see all of the updates. So none of this is hidden. She was going in and out of uh, out of these seizure states. They put her in this medically induced coma to try to stabilize her brain. And and what happened is she had some sort of massive brain swelling event, and it just wasn't. She couldn't recover from it. They couldn't they couldn't repair the damage. But during that time, even though she was incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word, the Holy Spirit who worketh when and where and how he pleaseth was still capable of regenerating and saving her. And so our prayer should have been that that would happen. And and I hope it did. I really hope it did because no matter who you are, God does not take delight in the death of the wicked. And so we should never, we should follow our Lord in that we should also should not take delight in the death of those who are apart from Christ um, or, or that we think maybe. So that's not the topic we're talking about tonight, but it, it's been heavy on my heart because there are times when I've, I've interacted with somebody online that's not a Christian and I've made a snap judgment about their salvation. And this is kind of the first time that one of those people has died. Right there's been times that like people that we would consider enemies of the faith Christopher Hitchens comes to mind right or or if Richard Dawkins were to die like we would all be pretty sure that they went into eternity cursing god right Ste- Stephen Hawking's like there's people who spent the majority of their life warring against a god they claimed they didn't believe in that's one thing but this is a person who grew up in the church this was a covenant child who grew up in the church, who confessed faith. I mean, she went to college with one of the reformed pub admins, like he knows her. So this isn't a person who's foreign from the evangelical community. So we have to hope that there was some, some kernel of faith that the Holy spirit blew into fire in his, in her last days that, that he then used to save her, that he saved her through.
0: Right.
1: So that was like a total downer, but, but it's, it's I think that's
0: important for us to consider because actually I think that does in a way, lead us in the direction of our conversation today. And we've been having this ongoing series of talking about the atonement, really unpacking what Jesus accomplished on the cross by looking at these various theories that attempt to explain the atonement. And we're doing that at least in part to get kind of this knowledge base that you were speaking of in the sense that we know that the atonement itself as a subject is like this vast mind that we cannot plumb the depths of. But we keep entering it kind of week after week here. And we keep, I think, finding treasures, turning over jewels and gems that help us understand and appreciate more the immense love the Trinity has shown to us by way of this plan of salvation. And so, again, it's all about expressing and understanding where we are in terms of our soteriology. And the atonement is a critical component of that. So I think it does certainly fit. And today we're talking about another theory that we're looking at, which is the governmental theory of the atonement. And so let's just drop, as we've been doing kind of as our custom, let's just drop a definition and then kind of go from there. Because I think this is a really interesting theory that I think has a lot of offshoots that really help us to understand how we feel or how what we're saying about God's character. And so I think there's just a lot of interesting things that we can unpack. But yeah. so in terms of like just a split second kind of really succinct definition, here's how I would describe it at least. So in this particular theory of the atonement, God punishes Jesus and basically uses his death as a token suffering for sins so that he can maintain the moral order and the government of the universe. So this is unique from some of the stuff we talked about kind of henceforth, because the governmental theory would refute the conception that Christ paid a penalty that corresponded with our particular sins. Right. So instead we have Christ's death, which is serving as a token suffering for sins. That's, that's not to say it's not a real death. It's not real suffering. It's just token or representative. And it's demonstrating that a penalty must be paid when laws are broken. And I would say most proponents of the governmental theory hold that God's justice did not actually demand a payment for sin. So in other words, by accepting merely this token suffering, God set aside his law. And he could have just relaxed his law altogether, actually, since he is not liable to any law. So the first component is we have this representative penal penalty that's paid. That's a little bit redundant. Uh, The second component would be that Christ's punishment under this theory also acts as a deterrent against future sin because it shows really the fearful lengths to which God will go in order to uphold the moral government of the world. So in that we have a little bit of that kind of moral influence theory sneaking in. So it's just kind of these two legs of this, this ladder. And that's very different than some of the stuff that we've talked about so far. This one is kind of moving us in a different direction.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the the governmental theory of the atonement sometimes is inaccurately described to basically mean like, um, because Jesus died on the cross, God can change the rules. Right. So, so that's actually, there are some forms of the governmental theory that function that way that, that somehow mystically, Christ's death on the cross allows God to relax his standard of justice such that we can actually accomplish the requirements of this sort of new law. But that's not the classic view of the governmental theory. The classic view of the governmental theory came out of the Arminian schools, and it it was basically what happens when the Arminians recognized that. Um, you couldn't maintain actual penal substitution as developed by Calvin and not have a particular limited atonement. So what they've done is they take this penal substitution element and they broaden it to encompass the whole church as an entity. And then you get saved by incorporating yourself into that new government. So the, 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 the sacrifice of Christ on the cross constitutes a new government or a new entity. And then that within that entity... The laws that that kind of govern satisfaction or govern justice are different than they are outside of that entity. And so, this actually isn't all that far off. If you really boil it down, it's not all that far off from what we talk about when we talk about the different covenants, right? Right. There's the covenant of works, which governs all of humanity that are in Adam, and then there's the covenant of grace, which governs humanity that are in Christ. And the the way that you're the difference is that in reformed covenantal theology the way that you're saved is not different between those two covenants right you're still go- you're still saved by perfect perpetual obedience the difference is that within the covenant of grace it's the perfect perpetual obedience of christ that is imputed to you that saves you where in governmental theory, Christ actually constitutes this brand new economy or brand new government. And within that government, the people who are in that government can be saved. And it does a lot of times come down to by obedience to whatever this new law is.
0: Right, exactly. And just like we've talked about, every each one of these theories kind of has like a champion or at least somebody whose name becomes associated with it because they were outspoken about right. it. And in this case, I'm glad you already dropped the A-bomb, so I didn't have to do that first. (laughs) In terms of uh, Arminius, and this is, I I guess you would, do you know how you say this dude's last name? I always get this wrong.
1: Hugo Grotius?
0: Yeah, Grotius is how I would say it too. So here's a guy who, and this is in like the 17th century, was really the biggest proponent of this, or at least the one in which kind of gets associated with it. And like you're saying, he argues that Christ did not bear our punishment, but really suffered as this penal example, whereby right. the law, like you're saying, was honored while sinners were pardoned. So it isn't just like you're saying this bait and switch, which is really unfair to say, well, God can just switch up what he wanted to do. And he just changed his mind because right. Jesus died on the cross. Um, and his view is called governmental, like you said, because he's envisioning God as like a ruler or head of government who passed a law. And in this instance, the law is basically coming from or he, what he saw coming from like Ezekiel 1820, the soul who sins shall die. And so here is, though, I think the fascinating outworking, if you subscribe to this theory in either a small or large way, and that is law in, under this view is a positive statute or an enactment. So it's it's not something inward in God or in the divine will or the divine nature, but it's only an effect of his will, which again is different from how we' talked about this before. So law is really a product of God's will by which not even he is bound and he can change it or abrogate it entirely as he sees fit. Right. So I don't think uh, Grotus would like he wouldn't deny that sin deserves punishment. But what's interesting is the argument here is that it does not follow that all sin must be punished. Like nothing, not even God's nature necessitates the actual enactment of that penal sanctions of the law. God must disapprove of sin and condemn sin, but it doesn't follow that he must punish it. And so this is where I think there is this really direct bridge to Arminianism, because when we're talking about this theory as saying Jesus represents this kind of, uh, penal restitution. Uh, it's restorative in that sense. It's, it's representative. It is a sacrifice, not necessarily the sacrifice for you. Right. This to me is the only way, not the only way, let me revise that. This is usually the way that people are, can say to anybody writ large, Jesus died for you. So like, do you see the bridge I'm kind of connecting there? Like I see there's this major connection. I think people often don't realize. And that is when I talk to a lot of my Arminian brothers and sisters and I say, we we talk about the atonement, we talk about the accomplishment of Christ and the cross, the efficacious of the cross, what they end up describing that is the governmental theory of atonement, because there is a propitiation aspect to it, but there, I think they're thinking more in terms of a straight substitute. But when you, I'm anticipating a bit, unfortunately, because we don't want to talk too much about penal substitution, but that all that to say, what they're kind of incorporating in or smuggling in is the sense that, no, Jesus took my particular and specific place in the cross. Yeah. But that can only be done if... You're saying that that person has been elect and chosen because that would mean that because they've been saved, because Christ has died specifically for them, they would, be, they would fall into double jeopardy if they were to be judged again because they had to make a decision for Christ. So I think the governmental theory is in some sense automatically paired with the Arminian worldview, but it's not right. often seen that way.
1: Yeah. And, and it, to be fair, not all Arminians hold this view. But it does go hand in hand, and I think it's fair to say that a consistent Arminian who wants to maintain the penal elements of atonement must hold this view. Exactly. And, and so most of the time, if you try to confront a modern Arminian and say you can't consistently hold to a penal substitution view, they're going to they're going to say like, "Well, that's a misrepresentation of what I believe." But the classic Arminians recognized that you can't hold to a penal substitution substitution view and also hold to a definite atonement. And so like I said this view really is their attempt to maintain those penal views and to their credit like they're trying to maintain that because the Bible uses that language. So right. they're faced with the fact that the Bible uses this penal substitution language and so what they're doing is they're taking their universal atonement Model their their universality of the atonement, and they're fusing it with penal substitution to come up with this idea that Christ Christ suffered on behalf of all of humanity, which then constituted a new context for them to be able to be saved. Right, and
0: what we're saying then is, I get, I think, if, I think I'm on the same page with you, is that in that particular view, I I would say, and this is again just based on some conversations that the atonement was sufficient for all, but efficient for those who make the conscious choice to quote, unquote, accept Jesus Christ as savior. Right. So that's where you get the sense where you, I think they can in full conscience with in in a clear conscience, say Jesus died for you to to every person. You can make that statement kind of unequivocally.
1: Yeah. Um, And and you know what, Uh, to be honest, like, a reform person can say that too and that that's one of the difficulties and challenges that i have with some of the more like um i say hyper calvinist not in the technical sense but in like the calm down i know you're a calvinist sense um, <laughs> they want to say like the reform podcast guys got into this huge like Bruja initially, because they said like, you shouldn't sing, you shouldn't tell your kids to sing Jesus Loves Me. And while right. they yeah, may or crazy. may not be correct that uh, that that is or isn't a logical outflow of the Baptist model where you don't consider your kids to be Christians, they got in trouble for it because it, on the face of it, it feels and sounds ridiculous. And right. it really is like, we don't have to couch all of our language Uh, Well, Jesus died for you, if perhaps you're the elect, like you don't have to say that we can say, and and the Westminster divine said this, Christ is dead for you. Like they, they proclaim that promiscuously because all of those who will accept and receive that it's true for all of those people. So I, I, that's one of those things that I get a little bit frustrated with some of our like reform peers that they want to try to couch the promiscuous proclamation of the gospel in terms of like, only the elect will receive it. Well, that's true, but when we, when we try to only preach to the elect, then we do fall into the actual error of hyper-Calvinism. Um, and this actually seems like a form of hyper-Arminianism in a way, because right. what they're saying, this flows into their concept of corporate election, which I don't think we're going to talk much about. But the idea that your elect, the, the election that Arminians talk about is not the election of individuals, but it's the election of a condition by which people may be saved. Right? right and so likewise the condition that people or the condition that is elected for people to be saved is obtained by means of the atonement so we you know we've said it before like in arminianism christ didn't die to save sinners he died to make salvation possible for sinners and that that may feel like a subtle nuance at first but it's a, it's an infinite difference right it's the difference between christ actually accomplishing salvation on the cross and christ accomplishing the potential of salvation. On exactly. The and that's a big difference.
0: Exactly. It's that efficaciousness that is the critical component in right. just that small change or flip of the language there, because you're right. I see the governmental theory primarily as really a slight variation of the penal substitutionary theory. And I think that's ex- exactly, I, I clung to what you said there about having the sensibility that the scriptures speak so much about the need for some kind of penal component that is representative, but this is a logically consistent way to preserve the fact that Jesus makes it possible for all to be saved by way of the atonement. And so the critical distinction, I think, is the extent to which Christ suffered when we're comparing these theories. So like in the governmental theory, Jesus Christ suffers the punishment of our sin, and he does propitiate God's wrath. And that's similar to penal substitution, but the difference is that in the governmental theory, Jesus Christ does not take the exact punishment we right. deserve. He takes a punishment. So Jesus dies on the cross to demonstrate the displeasure of God towards sin, which is something we would not disagree with, but he right. died to display God's wrath against sin and the high price, which must be paid, but not to specifically satisfy that particular wrath. And that's a right. big difference. And I think that's one of the things that we should kind of draw out is how we understand then what that says about God. And that's something I wanted to ask you about because I think in, in all of these different theories, we're, we're basically communicating something about how we understand God's character and his nature by ascribing to these or by taking certain parts of them and saying, we find these to comport with the biblical data. But I think more so with this one, because what I find interesting is when we undertake and really subscribe to this particular theory, theory we have to say that the atonement, the cause of the atonement is external to God. Do you know right? what I mean by that?
1: Yeah, yeah, I do, and and, and you're absolutely right. Is that um, the the we shouldn't say the cause, we should say a cause. So so there's roughly speaking, there's um, there's three different possibilities, right? Either the the cause, the cause, singular cause of the atonement is found within God, right? God is God is objectively solving a problem, and right. God takes care of all of that, all of what's necessary to solve that problem. Right. That's that's like a, a hardcore objective view. Or we could go the other direction and and the singular cause of atonement is entirely outside of God. And so you might have like a um, like a raw works righteousness model that would be this kind of atonement that that atonement is made because the sinner pays their own debt right? That, that would be a form of atonement. It's not what the Bible teaches, but that's a possible form of atonement. Right. Then there's these middle ground ones where, where for the most part, like God has to do something in order to make it possible for that which actually obtains the atonement to come into being, right? So in this case, God makes it possible for humans to fulfill a condition, but not, not by empowering those humans necessarily, but by creating the condition itself, So it would be like, um, you know, like when I have an employee at work, if I want them to do a really good job at something, one of the ways that I do that is by giving them an easy task. Right. So every every manager has had this situation where they have an employee that's struggling with like self confidence, and confidence is important in terms of achieving your goals at work. And so you you kind of give them like a softball task so that they can accomplish it, and then you you know you you praise them for it. Then you you ramp up the difficulty so you can build their confidence over time. Every manager has done that. Any management class will teach you that that's a viable method to improve the confidence of your employees. In a sense, God is doing something similar with the governmental theory, right? He's He's doing all the hard work himself. And then He's creating this context where you're able to fulfill the conditions that He sets forth. And He right. does that by setting forth conditions that are attainable for you. And, and that's the main difference in terms of the, the difference between you know, my comparison to the Covenant of Grace earlier. God sets forth conditions in the covenant of grace. But by no means are those congi- conditions attainable by the sinner, right? There's nothing that a sinner can do to generate faith within themselves. So God has to do it for you. And so it's different in that in the governmental theory, we are given this context by which we're able to obtain salvation by means of something we accomplish on our own, mostly unaided by grace. And that that's just not the gospel, not in the least. Right, exactly.
0: There's we have to ask like some strange questions with this theory, because if what we're saying is true, if there's nothing in the being or attributes of God that demands strict and exact infliction of punishment on the sinner, then why doesn't God dismiss the sinner from all obligation and just right. save him by a mere act of will? Or in other words, it's really the question we've been asking this entire series. Why did Christ have to die at all?
1: Exactly. So,
0: al- although God can remit the penalty of sin without satisfaction, according to the, the-, to the theory, as far as his own inner nature is concerned, he cannot do so in view of the welfare of the created order. And this is right. where we get, like you're saying, to this outside cause, so to speak. So the necessities of moral order make it unsafe for God to exercise his power in right remission of the penalty. So what I've been thinking of as you've been talking is this example of, let's say, like a spoiled child. So this idea that you know, if the child does something wrong, especially let's say a child misbehaves in like public, which is you know, like probably a parent's worst nightmare. Again, yeah. not a parent. <laughs> but I presume is based on the look I see on my friends' faces of children when their their children misbehave in public. If your child has a meltdown in public, as a parent, because let's say they've just really bad attitude, they've done something wrong. As a parent, it is with well within your rights and ability to forego any kind of punishment, either in the short term or the long term, for that particular right. action. But it is probably morally unwise in terms of your administration of parental government control over the child to not inflict some type of punishment, so as to not set the wrong precedent for future behavior. Exactly. And that's more or less where the governmental theory comes down, because that's where we have the final cause then of the atonement is external to God. The cause is what the interests of the universe require, not what the nature of God might demand. And I think that's where I always get hung up in this theory, because we have Christ's death as primarily attribute to the sanctity of divine government. His death demonstrates that while God remits, or I guess we could say like relaxes the penalty, he detests sin and desires to deter its spread within the created order. And it's yeah. almost like, we, like a good governor cannot allow his subjects to sin with impunity because to do that would encourage them to sin, just like it would encourage the child to misbehave if there was no punishment for that. So basically yeah. to protect everybody else and to preserve good order. And I'm with you on that. That's where I always kind of get, get caught up because I think sometimes, have you ever heard this go, and I only know this term because this appeals to like my, my professional nature as like a banker, but the like acceptation theory, have you ever heard it called this? I think Mm-mm. it's kind of like a, a branch of this. Have you ever no, heard that? I haven't. So, so it's this weird idea because I think this is actually in some respects like an actual financial term. But so like we've been talking about, we're basically saying that Christ's afflictions were accepted by God in the place of our punishment. Right. So we have to be specific because I think what we're both saying is that his sufferings were not equal in value or kind to what we, w- we would personally have received, but they were quote unquote, accounted as such by God. And so this has drawn in this term of acceptation, which in at least the banking world refers to the, the action where a creditor discharges his debtor, but without full or literal payment being made. So it's right. this idea that the creditor may cancel the debt entirely by declaring it paid or by receiving a partial payment in lieu of a full one. Right. The problem I have with people saying, well, this is exactly what's happening in the atonement is that if you take just that simple human example of debt cancellation, even if you get your debt partially canceled, it's still not without consequence, right? right. Like you, If you stop paying your car, your car payment right now, it's not like someone's going to be like, oh, you have financial hardship, that's too bad. I'll just wipe it out. They're going to take your vehicle if it's collateralized. If you stop paying any other bill for that matter, especially any kind of debt, because you've borrowed money, it's going to go against your credit score. So even we as humans realize that the acceptation theory really doesn't exist in this right. world. Right. And therefore, from an argument from lesser to the greater, it probably doesn't exist because, well, it doesn't exist as the scriptures describe it to us. But logically speaking, it can't exist at the divine level right. either.
1: Right. Yeah, it's the difference between... You're uh, the person to whom you owe money saying, look, I know you can't pay, so give me a half and we'll call it even. That's the governmental theory of the atonement. And we recognize right. that although there is an element of grace going on in that, and and no one would be foolish enough not to appreciate the grace of that offer, we also recognize that the person who is forgiving the debt is not acting in a manner consistent with justice. They're right. acting in a manner that's consistent with Gracious forgiveness. Now the, the the Bible teaches that God acts in a manner consistent with gracious forgiveness, but he does so in a way that makes him both just and the justifier. And that that's important. And we've kind of said that the atonement theory fills that that space that the word and Exists in in that that passage in Romans, right? How you parse out the the atonement is either going to make that statement coherent or incoherent, and I would argue that this this model of the of the atonement makes the statement just and justifier incoherent. And I want to demonstrate two things: one, why this is important that we understand this, and two, how it actually functions in the, in the real world. And it's important that we understand it because this doctrine is still present. Right now in our world on a daily basis, it's actually probably the dominant view of the atonement that exists. We love to think the reformed world is big, but we're a tiny fish in this pond. Like the reformed world is not the biggest voice out there. Um, So this is coming from the Salvation Army's website, and this is their doctrines. I'm going to read it as it stands now, and then I'm going to read it as it was written in the original um, statement here. Um, and it says, we believe that the Lord Jesus Christ has by his sufferings and death made an atonement for the whole world so that whosoever will may be saved. Now that sounds pretty much like what we would argue. But in the original um, 1892 version of this that William Booth wrote, it's much more expanded and it it gives us a better understanding of the origin. He writes, The scriptures teach that Christ on the cross, in virtue of the dignity of his person, the voluntariness of his offering and the greatness of his sufferings, did make and present on behalf of poor sinners a sacrifice of infinite value. So we're good so far. This is And that by this sacrifice... By the showing all the worlds, the terrible evil of sin and humanity committed and the importance of the law humanity had broken, did make it possible for the love and pity of God to flow out to humanity by forgiving all those who repent and return in confidence to him, enabling him to be the just and yet the justifier of him that believes in Jesus. Now, the problem with that is that once you get past talking about the sacrifice of infinite value, there's nothing in there that continues the idea of substitution, and so, right. so what? What the atonement in uh, Booth's view here, which is a classic understanding of the, the governmental theory, what his understanding of the atonement is, is that you know God's wrath was demonstrated, the severity of breaking the law was was shown forth, and that somehow those two things make it possible for God to forgive people who repent. But there's no talk of remuneration of sins. There's no talk of expiation or propitiation of sins. It simply is that somehow because the wrath of God was was visibly demonstrated, God can forgive. And that, that just doesn't fill that and in the just and justifier formula with anything that actually reconciles those things. God is not just. He is the justifier in this model, but he's not just because justice is not being executed. Right. Um, Christ is not receiving the just punishment of our sins he's just being he's just being beaten to show everyone how mad god is like right. that's what drives me nuts is that penal substitution as a model is painted as cosmic child abuse commonly in our world but this model this is the cosmic child abuse right this is christ just being the whipping boy so everybody can see how pissed off God is. And then somehow, because God's vented, that means he can now relax a little bit and let everyone who wants to come into heaven come into heaven. Like, I know that's a caricature, but when you boil it all down, that's actually what's going on in the model. And so it, it frustrates me because although there are some like kernels to this that that make sense, That yeah, God's wrath was manifest on the cross. And yes, God does open up a new economy for those who are in Christ and a way to salvation. The actual like core of this doctrine is just rotten to like all the way down. Right.
0: And that's why we're trying to spend time talking about this to actually get into it and get behind it to really see where the rubber meets the road on this stuff. I'm glad you went there because my point in having these conversations with you is to understand how these affect us and impact our practical theological outworkings and yeah. living. And I agree with you. I think that with this, this is of all the things we're going to talk about across this entire series. I think this is the one that is the default mode for many Christians, whether they realize yep. it or not, because yep. it's trying to preserve this sensibility that Jesus died for all in this really grand sense that all those who basically choose him may be saved and at the same time, what we don't realize is what we're saying when we make that statement, what is implicitly behind that statement. Because one of the things that Bible makes abundantly clear is that God's justice is meticulous. I mean, he's yeah. provided a fully sufficient payment for sin in Christ, but that payment is particular it's for our particular sins. And we have no hope of forgiveness unless there is a particular price that has been paid for the sins, for the infractions, everything that I've done that has transgressed the law. When we take that away, we're actually stripping away the power, the very power of the atonement that we're trying to give to people. And we just don't realize it because we're trying to preserve these, these two things in harmony, which cannot exist in consummate harmony. Yeah. So the, the power of the cross and the glory of the resurrection is that Christ's sufferings were not merely just token example of God's antipathy towards evil, as if like he generally doesn't like it, but he tolerates it on the whole. It is the reaching down on his own volition, the condescension of the God-man to say, I will come and pay the specific debt. Yeah. And I can't imagine what it would be like to try to explain to somebody who's trying to be thoughtful in process soteriology, who is... Who, who would say the spirit is calling and they're having a conversation with another believer. And this believer is explaining what we've just talked about. Somebody I'd say who's come with a severe burden of sin, who is coming with specific things in their past, in their behaviors, in their mind that they need to be and want to be released from and getting this sense. Well, yeah, Jesus died like in a general sense for like all sin, but not necessarily for the stuff you're talking about, particularly, you know, like that, that goes against like everything in Hebrews about this great high priest right. who comes and is able to, you know, slap down the payment for our particular debt, big or small, and then to, to wipe it away and then to fill us with his grace. So that the, the account, so to speak is yeah. made full. And we have all these riches in Christ. Like I, I just, I, the Bible does not want us to have that taken away from us. I just cannot get behind this for that very reason.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I heard it once said, um, you know, I'm not sure why this analogy came to mind, but I heard it once said that they were talking about the bridegroom or the wedding feast of the lamb, right? And they were talking about the RSVP list. They were using the analogy that the the book of the life, the book of the lamb, the the book of life that all of our names are written in is like the RSVP list for a wedding. And it's not an RSVP list that we RSVP to. Right, we are all in a sense Jesus is plus one. Right? So so when, when the RSVP comes in, it's RSVP Jesus plus one Jesse. RSVP right. Tony or Jesus plus 1 Tony. And so we okay. we don't get into the wedding feast on our own merits. We get into the wedding feast because Christ has concretely earned the right to come to the wedding feast. And because we are united with him in his death and resurrection, we are swept up in his righteousness and brought into that feast with him. Right and on. so so in in this one here, it's essentially like Christ bought all the tickets, but then he sends them out to us and we have to make our way to the wedding ourselves. Right. That, that's the governmental view is that he's got tickets for everybody, but we've got to claim that ticket and make our way into the wedding ourselves. And that's just not, that's just not the picture that the Bible presents of, of how the atonement works. The, the atonement is so much more concrete than, than most of these views give it credit for. It just drives me nuts. It's another one of those things where I'm like, how can you not see this? It's right on the surface of the Bible. Yes. But, but yeah, for whatever I- reason, it's, it's presuppositions that they hold about other elements of theology that prevent. Perform- prevent. prevent them from reading this in a straightforward fashion. That's right there on the surface of the text.
0: Exactly. And yet, as you're giving that example about the wedding and the tickets and RSVP in my ears, it sounds very evangelical, doesn't it?
1: Right. Yeah, it it does. I mean, the, the the fact is like some people, I mean, you, when you were married, you know, you've got a guest list and you got to make choice about who's going to come. And I remember making those decisions and thinking, I want to invite this person and I know they're going to bring this person with them as their date. So I don't need to, I don't need to invite that person too. And like, so that's the model. That's actually the model that the Bible presents in terms of how the atonement works is that God, God gives us entrance to the feast because we come with Jesus, right? We come with Jesus and that's how we get in. This model is not that we come with Jesus It's actually that Jesus agreed not to come to the feast. I mean, in a certain sense, it's like Jesus agreed to take the punishment so that we can somehow find our way into the feast. And like those, there's no logical connection that ties those two elements together. Like why would Jesus being punished on a cross somehow enable us not to be punished for our own sins? It just doesn't, the the ends don't line up. And so, so the system is just incoherent with itself.
0: Right. I agree. And there's so much more biblical data I think we could present to that end, but I think I want, what I'm getting out of this is just such a sense kind of in looking at this in relief of encouragement that when Christ took on himself the sins of the world, I like the word you used. It was concrete. That was, was particular. It was meticulous. And he left no sin as, so to speak, unturned in his payment. And so when we say paid in full, we don't just mean, well, You know, he made a representative payment. He he was as you were like the guy with the giant check, making some kind of you know just kind of token gesture. Right. But he he literally spoke into my life, and took the penalty for my particular sins, and cleansed me. So that when we say like if, you know, if you ask for forgiveness it's this dual benefit of being forgiven and then cleansed of all unrighteousness. And the only way to be fully cleansed of all unrighteousness is if the atonement was concrete in nature.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jesse, I think we should wrap up tonight, but we have a few announcements and then we're going to get into our spiritual conferencing. Yes, let's do it. So the first announcement is we are ready to do our Confessional Wear drawing. We are giving away six items from ConfessionalWear.com. Our brother, Raphael, has been such a generous um, partner in helping us produce merchandise. He's got uh, the uh, Reformed Pilgrims set up with their own platform, with their own store. So check that out. And we have six winners that we're going to give away some gear to. Jesse, are you ready for me to read these names?
0: Yeah, I'm ready. So here's what you have to do. If you hear your name called, shoot us an email at info at and we'll get you some sweet, sweet swag.
1: Yes. And you have to email us from the email that you use to enter the contest. That's how we verify that you're who you say you are.
0: Right. All right. So who is predestined to receive some stuff?
1: So we have six winners. We have Jonathan Laboy or Laboy. I'm going to say Laboy. Jonathan's Laboy. Uh, <laughs> we have... That sounds like a joke that mom would make, isn't it? It totally does. Uh, we have Brian Klein. We have Justina Brown. And we have John Hope, Jordan Gerard or Gerard, and John Lucero Jr. So if you heard your name called, email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com from the email you used to enter, and we will get you set up uh, to get some free gear And uh, it's going to be awesome. I have a lot of gear from this uh, ConfessionalWear.com. He has great stuff. The prices are awesome. Um, And he's just been a really good brother. So if you haven't had a chance, if you didn't win and you want some sweet gear, head on over to ConfessionalWear.com. There's a Reformed Brotherhood uh, store. There's a Reformed Pilgrim store. There's an According to Christ store if you want to cry yourself to sleep since they're not on the show anymore. Uh, But you could still support them. Um, It's just really good stuff. It's good merchandise. So check it out.
0: Thanks to everyone who entered the contest. I'm sure this is something that we'll do again. And we just appreciate the support and you giving us a listen. And to that end, here's something, before we do this, end with some spiritual conferencing. Here's something that, Tony, we just don't do enough of. And that is, I was thinking the other day, I want to say thank you to everybody who listens and either provides their support by sending us voicemails, participating in the contest, and especially those who actually give financially. Thank you for giving faithfully to help us cover the costs of this podcast because there are expenses and it's such a blessing to have that burden shared by others and to know that it is being edifying. We appreciate what God is doing through these little conversations that we have.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And you know, our uh, website hosting fees just came up and it didn't cost us any money out of pocket because we were able to have enough funds stored up from our faithful listeners to be able to pay for that and not to have to worry about where that money's coming from. Um, And we love doing the show. Uh, We would, we would do it and we would pay for it if we had to, but, but we're grateful that we don't have to.
0: It's a true blessing. So let's conclude with a little spiritual conferencing. So this is that time where we kind of just speak briefly about what the Lord has been teaching us in this week. And so I'll start off if that's cool with you. Yeah, go for it. So I've been looking at just real quick, some large chunks of first Samuel because it's just like so many amazing epic encounters and narratives in there. And for whatever reason on this pass through, because I was reading it in a little bit more of an aggregated form. Um, I came across, of course, the, the account of David and Goliath. Um, And of course we are not David and our (laughs) sins are not Goliath. (laughs) You're not David. That's, yeah, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, just just wanted to set that out there so that nobody was expecting that that's where I was going to go with this. But I was just marveling again at David's response when he goes up to the the Philistine battle line there, and you know Goliath comes out, gives his little spiel, and. For whatever reason, it just, I just always love how like, how hard David is like right away. Like his reaction is just hardcore. And I think we're tempted to look at that and be like, here's like a brave dude. Like here's a dude that like, you know, has God has anointed and he's young and he comes up right away and says like, you are defying the army of the living God. Like we just say like, yeah, he's, he, he gets it. He's right on it. And for whatever reason, this time when I was reading through that, I came to first, I think it's like two chapters before that, where we get this contrast between how God empowers David versus Saul. And the scripture says plainly, and the Holy Spirit came on David from that time forth, which is different than Saul where the Holy Spirit kind of comes intermittently, so to speak, with like kind of fits and spurts to use that language. And so I got to that passage with Goliath and I was like, of course. And it suddenly clicked for me. I was like, this is the response of a dude that has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. And my response should be likewise. The reason why he can talk like this, the reason why he does talk like this as almost like his visceral, normal response to the situation is because this is somebody who is close to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. So I was just blown away by that because I was like, it's not like David's like a superhero, which we're often tempted to make him here. Like, you know, again, here's somebody that just like really understands what God is doing. No, here's just a dude that's just sold out, yeah. that is, is fully yielded to the Holy Spirit and for whom God has made his presence specifically known. And I think like we we are that we are that people. We are that people yeah. now. And that, that's really the, the mode of thinking I need to get in is to be, you know, be marinating myself in the scriptures and praying consistently and constantly that the Holy Spirit would enliven me to speak in that kind of way, to be offended when it's right to be offended, to speak out, to seek piety and to kind of have that response of, of moving forward in the Christian faith with like a fire, with a, a lack of fear, with a courageousness that's not manufactured. It's not like just try harder
1: yeah.
0: and, you know, speak up more, uh, it's be sold out. So yeah. I just love, I just love that. I was like, man, that David is, is the man because, uh, and, and there's no reason why I can't be that kind of man, uh, if I'm really seeking after the Lord in, in that kind of way.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I mean honestly like for me it's been sort of a sort of just a downer week. Um not not in like the sense that anything bad has happened, but you know, coming out of the conference last weekend, um you know, you kind of come down off this spiritual high and and you sort of hit like the the trough after the peak, right? You're you're way up and then you come down and it's like things have just felt normal. And and today this morning at church, it kind of hit me like that's fine. Like God works through the ordinary means of grace, the the day in and day out normal things that happen, and so for me this week has just been an exercise in just kind of trusting God that He's still moving in the ordinary, like He's still moving in the regular things, and like I've noticed it this week, like it's been harder to keep up on my Bible reading, it's been harder to pray, it's it's just felt like everything feels so like, bleh, like everything feels so like monotonous, but but for the most part throughout history. God's people have existed in ordinary fashion and they've been nourished by the Holy Spirit through the ordinary means of grace that they experience on a daily and weekly cycle. So for me this week for spiritual conferencing, it's just kind of a matter of like, I need to relearn to rest in the everyday blessings of common grace and special grace that God's given me.
0: I like that. I appreciate that your honesty and candor with that because who hasn't been in that particular situation even recently? You know, I think it's yeah. important to remember that. And I like that John Owen would sp- speak often of this, so that sometimes God leads us into a desert or a challenging situation, not because he wishes to punish us, but He because he wishes to draw us back onto himself to realize right. what it is to feel that disassociation. And it's funny you bring this up because I want to share like one last thing that hopefully a point of encouragement for you and, and for others as well. And that is, um, I was listening to another album this week. It's all about the music. Um, by my, my iPod is like really eclectic. I mean, I just, cause I just, I spoke about jazz Now I'm going to sp- speak about, um, some rap real quick, but this is off an album by a group called Beautiful Eulogy. And uh, they have a song called Signs and Symbols, which is great. Everybody should look this up because the lyrics are just so on point. And, uh, it's basically a jam about how. Christians tend to want to over-spiritualize things, look for signs yeah. and symbols. They want to have that really kind of glorious, all the time, high experience from God. And so let me just read you a couple of uh, lyrics from verse three. I'm not going to wrap them um, because that
1: would, it would <laughs> everybody would throw their devices. I'd um, like to hear but, that sometime, maybe sometime personal in, like in person.
0: Yeah, but I, I love this because it speaks exactly uh, to what you said. So this is the third verse. It says, I like it when the wind shifts. They say it's the movement of the spirit. Still small voice. Y'all hear it? Remember that time I saw the leaf fall? I was positive it was God's call. Wait for it. Listen close. Y'all missed it? I cite Gideon, Samson, Paul, Elijah saw the clouds split and know that God did it and does it still. Still his presence feels like chills, right? And if I'm honest, it doesn't happen often. Something must be wrong. It's boring when my life is more like the book of Ruth than Exodus. I've never seen the parting of an ocean or a cloud by day or a pillar by night. Just the normal everyday working of life. Yeah, And I love this idea of like, oftentimes our lives are more like the book of Ruth than Exodus, but that's exactly where the father is always working. That consistent plan for our lives, that wonderful sovereignty that takes us from day to day. So I think there's some beauty in in what you just said.
1: Yeah. Well, Jesse, I think that that probably wraps us up for the week. Uh, Just a quick ask from our audience. Uh, If you could, we would really love it if you would share this atonement series uh, with your friends on Twitter or Facebook. Um, if you go to our website and look in the top uh, bar of the uh, Reform Brotherhood.com, there's a button that says episodes. If you hover over that, you can drop down and you'll find most of our series. And if you click on the Atonement series, it'll take you straight to all of our Atonement episodes. So if you could share that uh, page with uh, people you think might be edified, that would be excellent.
0: Sounds great. Well, until next time,
1: honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Oh.